I think there are probably very few things that all people would agree on. Very few ideas or interests. And yet there is something very fundamental that we all share. And when people are asked, although they might express it in different ways, I think it's quite clear that there is a universal interest we have as human beings in something we could call happiness. Now, of course, one might have problems with that particular word. It might sound a little bit too sweet um, to be what we're really interested in. We might talk about peace. We might talk about freedom. But there is something which we sense is possible in life, which draws us, which calls us. And in seeking that which we are drawn towards, the question arises for us, how do we attain this? How do we come to this, whatever it might be? How do we find happiness? Because it can seem that uh, after some years of endeavor, and perhaps quite some decades, we often find ourselves feeling sadly distant from that which we are seeking, feeling that we haven't yet really understood how it comes about. And it's important to recognize in this that that isn't necessarily our fault. Because we can easily blame ourselves or blame someone else for the way life is or for the challenges we face in it. And yet, what's clear from spiritual teachings is that when we don't or haven't encountered them, it's very easy for us to be caught up and carried away by the activities and the perspectives of a world that is not driven or not driving towards happiness. But it seems that all too often is heading in the opposite direction. And so to engage in the spiritual journey is to engage with the question, well, what brings true happiness, genuine satisfaction, deep peace? All these words point to something that I, th- I think in our hearts we all resonate with, that we're all looking for. And yet, too easily, find ourselves without really a clue, actually, as to how to get there. When we've tried the familiar patterns, the familiar ways that are suggested to us by our culture, and find that they don't necessarily work. They don't always bring to us what they appear to promise. The Buddha spoke of this often. And this really was his interest and the basis of his teaching, the inquiry into this question, what brings happiness? Or, as he more classically framed it, what is the cause of unhappiness or suffering? And how does that come to an end? These two ways of framing it, whether we talk about seeking happiness or seeking the end of suffering. These really frame the basic movement of our life and what is really important to us in our hearts. The Buddha once said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And it's a kind of interesting formulation. It's actually very famous and often quoted. And yet, as a friend of mine once reflected upon it, he said, well, that's two things. And he uh, went on to uh, surmise rather lightheartedly that perhaps the Buddha just started off teaching suffering, just one thing. But it wasn't very popular. No one really wanted to hear too much about that. And so he thought that he needed to add a little more. The end of suffering. Of course, that is what we're interested in. That is what calls to us. And so, the end of suffering is what spiritual practice is concerned with. Coming to understand how to be in the world and to engage in our lives in such a way as to release 
the suffering and the sense of limitation or bondage that it is so often and easily entangled with or within. And in beginning to reflect on this theme, I find it useful and important to just acknowledge why it is that we seek for happiness, for the end of suffering. It's because we care for our own well-being. We care for our life. We care for the life of others. This is something important. This is precious. And in one way we might say, of course, that doesn't make me special. Well, that's not anything surprising. And yet, that caring, the fact that we care about our life, we care about life, is actually profoundly important in this. Because it's from this place that our spiritual engagement, our spiritual practice, our spiritual exploration needs to come. This really is the foundation from which we move into the practice of insight meditation, into the practice of yoga, into the process of being on retreat, out of a sense of caring for our own well-being. And from that place of caring, seeking to learn, to grow, to understand more deeply and fully our lives and how to live them. So to really honour that positive aspiration, that genuinely wholesome and good aspect of our being that that cares for our well-being. And we need to do this because when we look back on the years and the decades of our lives, what we'll see is perhaps we've made a few mistakes along the way. Perhaps we've gone down some dead ends or we've put a lot of energy into things that in the end we're not quite sure if they were worth what we gave them. And to not blame ourselves or be hard on ourselves for that until we come to understand the way the life that we experience actually happens, how it works, so to speak. It's really hard to do much more than to you know, practice trial and error. And so the fact that we make mistakes is actually a, not a bad thing. We can't learn if we're not willing to make mistakes. And so we need to begin, as well as connecting with our sense of the goodness of our aspiration for happiness, but also with a sense of forgiveness for the limitations in our capacity to follow that path quickly or clearly or instantly in the way we might imagine or wish we should be able to. And in that forgiving of the mistakes or the challenges that we've encountered, we can also come into contact with a sense of possibility. That when we've tried and not succeeded in different ways, it sometimes undermines our sense of faith or possibility. When we can forgive ourselves for not being perfect, for making mistakes, then I think we naturally again come into contact with that that deeper place in our being that, that trusts in the possibility of the human heart. And this is something again that the Buddha spoke of. He said, it is possible to do this, to free your heart and mind. He said, if it wasn't possible, I wouldn't ask you to. But it is possible. And so I do ask you to. And this is really the invitation to which we respond. The condition of our heart and mind is so important to us. It touches us so deeply. We often feel defined by it. Although ultimately it does not need to define us. We do need to understand how it is that it comes to be this way. How it is that we experience our mind and our heart the way we do. And our body too, of course, is part of that. So when we're here on retreat, we're not actually removing ourselves from our lives. We step away from certain aspects of our life. For sure. And usefully so. But in fact, the body and the mind and the heart that we have here, that we experience as we go through the day, 
is the same body, the same mind, the same heart as that which we live our life through. And it is the condition of that body, mind and heart that most defines our sense of well-being, of happiness, of ease or satisfaction. And so, looking at how we experience ourselves, our minds, our hearts, our bodies, here, will tell us about how we experience our lives. What we notice, and quite a few people will report in different ways, that coming on retreat, although when you, when you sort of make the plan, you have this idea of something really spacious and sort of smooth and easeful and delightful and sort of blissful and all these... And, of course, there can be moments of this, but when we actually arrive and we're here on retreat, we realize, oh, it's actually not like that. Some of the time it's boring. Some of the time it's really hard. Some of the time it's a little unsettling or scary even when we enter into situations or experiences that are not familiar to us coming into silence or coming into contact with a place in ourselves that we don't know that well. There are so many things we experience here that challenge us. And in this way, it's just like life. In life, we experience so many things that are challenging, that are difficult. And we can't get away from that. Often we think, or we might imagine, that it's because we're doing something wrong. But actually, it's because life inherently has these challenges, has these difficulties, has these painful elements to it that are hard to bear, hard to open our heart to. And so we notice when we're practicing at times there's discomfort. And we don't like discomfort. Or at times there's confusion and we're wondering, why am I doing this? This doesn't make sense. It's not getting anywhere. I'm just the same as I was. Maybe it works for someone else. Or we experience agitation and we just can't seem to be still or quiet or calm. We just want to move. We want to, we're sitting still and we want to jump up and run out of the hall. Or we're just very slowly going through a movement in the yoga. And we just really want to hurry up and finish it and do something else. And there's just this, these energies, these waves of energy can come, come to us, move through us. Or drowsiness, we feel heavy and dull. And maybe if we're doing a lying posture, it's okay because we can just slip off to sleep and no one will notice. But if we're sitting up, it's a little embarrassing if we fall over and land on our neighbour. And if we're standing up, it's a bit scary because if we fall asleep, it's a long way down. We don't want to hurt ourselves. It's pretty reliable that you won't fall asleep while you're standing. But... Apparently someone did once report to me they had succeeded. They were quite proud. (laughs) I didn't know if it was something to boast about, but it sounded interesting. Although I would say on that uh, score, in terms of sleepiness, working with sleepiness, although almost nothing is guaranteed in meditation, if you put your arms up and hold them up, as I mentioned earlier, you won't fall asleep, so long as your arms are in the air. And you can test this out for you, for yourself. As long as your arms are in the air, you will not fall asleep. If you put them back down, of course, you won't fall asleep again. But there's a way in which engaging with our experience in that way, we can find creative and practical solutions. And that's just, in some ways, a small area of the territory. But the fact that we experience drowsiness, or heaviness, or pain, discomfort, confusion, reactivity, agitation... All this is not because you're here on a meditation and yoga retreat and we're forcing you to sit still, we're making you be aware of your body and move through the postures very precisely and slowly. It's because this is the conditions of the mind that we experience in our life, but mostly we avoid actually feeling it and seeing it clearly because we're acting it out. We're trying to do something to fix it or get rid of it all the time. And it keeps us so busy, but it doesn't actually work. It doesn't actually come to any conclusion or end point. It just goes on and on and on. So we arrive here so busy, so full, so much in a rush.
And we're invited to slow down. We're invited to come into contact with our experience. We see how quickly and how easily and sometimes how enthusiastically we head off somewhere else in search of entertainment, distraction, or just any form of escape from this simple experience. But ultimately there's nowhere we can go. We can't escape from our mind, our body, our heart. We can't escape it. So what we need to do is learn about it. We need to understand it. And in this way we can understand meditation as happiness training, our spiritual practice. It's like learning that which we need to learn, which we can't just be told and then we'll know it. If it was that easy, we'd write it down, hand it out, we'd all go home and be happy forever after. It's not like that. It's not that kind of information. It's something we can only learn through the very cells of our body, through engaging in a process that brings us into contact with the very places and the very mechanisms where we do struggle, where we do suffer, where we do resist and react our life react against our life and in doing so we begin to see what we're doing and why we're doing it and we start to have the opportunity to consider whether it's actually so useful and whether there might be an alternative so this journey and this practice is challenging is demanding but to free ourselves from suffering from limitation and unsatisfactoriness is worth making an effort for. It's worth dedicating our life to because we care about ourselves. We care about others and actually living a life that is full, that is wholesome, that expresses peace and understanding and compassion. This is really worth giving time to. And in some way I'm you know, I'm not expecting what I say here to be news to you because I don't imagine you would be here unless to some extent you already understood and related to what I'm speaking about. And yet there can also be ways in which we're, when we come on retreat we encounter all those parts of ourselves which aren't so sure about it. Which it sounded like a good idea on Friday afternoon driving over but then we think, hmm, do I really have to do this for five days? You know, how long is it going to take to get through the end of the sitting or the end of the yoga period, let alone to the end of the retreat? Sometimes we notice our mind thinking like that. What it means is that something at the moment in the present is difficult (coughs) or challenging and we need to notice it. So this journey that we're in is a journey towards liberation from suffering. Releasing our life from bondage. And there's a way in a dimension which we can usefully understand it through as a training. A training. It's not just a training. It's not just like we have to go through the, uh, the process of learning something through repetition and that will solve everything. It's not that mechanistic. And yet there is a training element to it. To train our heart-mind in what is skillful and supportive, conducive to happiness. The Buddha once said, I know of no single thing that conduces more to suffering than an untrained mind. By this heart-mind I would translate and he said, I know of no single one, one single thing that leads more to the end of suffering, conduces more to the end of suffering, than a well-trained heart and mind. And so, the teachings of Buddha Dharma, as they're described, or Buddhism as sometimes it's referred to, are about a training of heart and mind. And there are three core themes that the Buddha spoke of that really are the foundations of happiness that when we give attention to them and care to them, and they can be expressed in different traditions and different forms, but in the, the deep and authentic traditions that one finds in the world, of which certainly Buddha Dharma is one, and equally the yogic path is another, 
one finds these different elements. And the first element of the area that we need to give attention, the first foundation for happiness, is the area of our action, how we act in the world. And we've already touched on this a little bit last night. I spoke some about actions in relationship to precepts, which is a way in which we contain and frame our action. But to say a little bit more about it, the underlying understanding for spiritual practice is to see that happiness results from our actions, from how we are in the world. Not what comes to us or what we get, but actually how we engage, how we enter into and how we respond to life. This is the basis of happiness. And this rests upon the intentions from which we act. That so far as we act from a place of kindness, from a place of non-greed or generosity, from a place of compassion or non-cruelty, then we actually find we encounter happiness. And so far as we act from selfishness, from cruelty, or from a wish to harm, from anger and hatred, so long as we act from these places, we suffer and we find happiness eludes us. And this is quite a simple formulation. It's reasonably clear. And if we look and reflect upon our lives, we'll see how much joy and happiness is born of the good actions we've undertaken in our lives. And how much pain and suffering comes from those actions born of anger or hatred, cruelty or selfishness, without having to judge the actions, because we've all at times acted in these ways. It doesn't mean that somehow that makes one bad, but it's like understanding, oh, this doesn't lead to happiness. Something else leads to happiness. Generosity, friendliness, caring for the well-being of others. Helping heal the suffering of others and ourselves. This leads to happiness. Again, this isn't particularly sort of striking news, I imagine. We, we mostly know this. But what's interesting in this is that it's actually really hard to do that. It's really hard to follow that simple wisdom and live it. Because we're so strongly driven at times by fear and desire. And we find ourselves unconsciously acting out of those places of self-centered neediness or defensiveness or anger. It happens to us all. And what happens is that mostly, so far as we haven't been training or practicing, we're acting unconsciously. We're reacting to experiences that arise without actually having much choice. We think we're choosing our action, but we're not. We're driven by inner forces that we have not understood fully and in that so far as we're not present so far as we're not conscious we can't choose how we act someone says something it touches a button in us and we react we're feeling fearful about something but not having enough and we find ourselves acting out of a place of selfishness it happens so easily. So one of the classic things is sort of sometimes the uh, we're going down the meal queue and we sort of see there's some food and we're wondering it's going to be a long time till the next meal. And we start to pile it onto our plate, and it's you know we, we walk back and it's you know past a bake with tons of cheese like wow oh, great. We end up with this massive great plate sitting there and we're sitting there trying to eat it, and it's wonderful, but. You know, by the time we're halfway through, we realize we've got more than we need. And there's actually plenty of it left. This happened to me once exactly like that. It was with lasagna, actually. It's one of my favorite foods. And I actually didn't enjoy the lasagna. I was so busy eating it, hoping there'd be more left for seconds. And of course, by the time I finished my big plateful, I didn't want any more. And I hadn't even enjoyed that which I was eating. We lose contact with where we are, and we just act out our fears. And my fear there was that I wouldn't get enough lasagna. 
really, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world. But we forget that somewhere inside ourselves. And so, the second element of what the Buddha pointed to is the development of mind and heart through being present, through actually developing, cultivating this capacity to be conscious and connected. Because only from that place of presence where we know where we are, where we can see what's happening, can we actually make the choices that will transform our lives. If we're not conscious, we just enact our reactivity. When we're conscious, we begin to have a choice. We don't always manage to make the right choice because I probably actually knew that I didn't need to eat that much lasagna, but sometimes I thought, but it's going to taste good. What the heck? You know, we do that. We see ourselves doing that sometimes. But... But at least we begin to have options. We see where we're tightening or contracting in our body. We can begin to release or soften around it. It doesn't mean we can make that tightness go away, but we can actually begin to work with it skillfully. Whereas when we're not conscious, when we're not present, we can tend to just be holding so much contraction in our bodies. And we encounter that as we sit, as we walk, as we move through the yoga postures. We feel those places and they can be uncomfortable. And yet by being willing to feel them, willing to encounter them, we can start to learn about them. We can start to understand what they are and what they have to show us, to offer to us. <coughs> so we, we train, we practice being mindful. We practice being present, being aware of our breathing, of our bodies, of what's going on inside us and around us. And to begin with, it's so useful to simplify it and we just focus on a particular element of the experience, the breathing, or a particular aspect of the movement when we're walking, or a particular area of sensation or region of activity in the yoga posture, just to gather and focus our attention because so much we tend to be scattered by a multiplicity of different things it's like many different forms of input, demand and stimulation are happening at any given moment and if we attempt to engage with and respond to them all what tends to happen is we get sort of it's like our attention becomes too diluted it doesn't have any potency left. We can't really see that clearly. It's like a torch. If we were in a dark room and we were trying to illuminate everything at once by waving the torch wildly around in all directions, we wouldn't actually see anything at all. And we'd wonder why we kept banging into things as we tried to navigate our way through the room. And the mind's a bit like that. you know. We say, okay, point the torch of your mind at the breath. How long can it stay there? Not long. It flickers off to something else. And yet, over time, as we keep bringing it back, as we keep coming back, as we are reminded by perhaps a voice from outside, or sometimes it seems miraculously a voice from inside, that uh, the instructions we give up, we give here from the front, uh, to support you in remembering yourself, reminding yourself. We find one finds oneself coming back, and it's. A slow process, but one that does happen. And you'll already at times have noticed, oh, it's a little more possible to be present. And at other times, of course, it may seem just as difficult. Sure, that's how it is. But that's the training. That's the process we go through. Seeing how, as we let our attention, or as we support our attention, to be more and more focused, and more and more present, there's a natural quality of harmony and well-being that arises. That even if it's just a few moments when we're with our breathing, it's not somehow because the breathing is a great or special experience, although actually it is. It's a remarkable thing. But it's actually it's more to do with being connected. That in that quality of connection and presence, there's a natural sense of well-being that begins to arise, that begins to develop and deepen. Because to be present, to be connected, is actually much more natural 
for us. But we've unlearned that capacity. It's not something foreign or alien to us, but we've unlearned it by the way our lives affect us and by the fact that for most of us we weren't really encouraged or supported in strengthening or developing it in our lives until we encounter spiritual practices and teachings. So we learn to be here, to come back again and again, to be gentle with our mind and on ourselves when we find we're distracted or reactive. It's not useful or helpful to blame or to judge our mind or ourselves or our practice when we find that we're getting distracted or caught up in reactivity or lost, disconnected. But just simply to begin again. Creating an environment inside, an inner environment that's welcoming for yourself. Welcoming so that it's a place you'd like to abide in. Even if you don't manage to be there that long before you disappear. It's a place you can always come back to. And this requires a great degree of courage because some of the places we encounter aren't easy to be with. It requires a a patience because the habits of mind that we've cultivated over years and decades, maybe lifetimes, don't just come to an end because we've decided we'd like to stop the mind from spinning. If we've been encouraging it, or certainly allowing it to spin for much of our lives, of course it's going to take a while to slow down. But just like a big mill wheel or a flywheel on a machine that's got lots of momentum, if you actually stop spinning it, just allow it, you'll see it spins. Sure, it keeps going, the mind keeps spinning, but it also begins to slow down. And if we don't fight with it, because fighting with it actually keeps the mind spinning. If we don't fight with it, we just acknowledge it as it is and come back again and again and again. The momentum starts to lose its energy. It begins to slow down. We begin to arrive more and more fully, more and more naturally, just where we are. And we are asked in this process to learn to let things be. To not struggle with our experience, to not struggle with the way things are. So much of the time we imagine or believe that the problem is that things should be different. My experience should be different. I should be different. My body should be different. My mind should be different than it is. And while it's appropriate and of course natural and understandable to have some aspiration for growth, for transformation, for development. Where that actually comes from, or what actually enables that process to happen, is when we allow ourselves to be where we are. When we allow our experience to be as it is. When we're not struggling with it. But we're learning to meet it with the very qualities that we wish it to express. So if we're finding something difficult or or hard to be with, if we struggle with that experience, and it could be the busyness of our mind or the painfulness of our knee or the soreness of our shoulder, if we meet that experience from a place of care, from a place of interest, oh, look what's happening. My mind is all busy and rushing to and fro. Or, oh, my shoulder really hurts. Wow. Okay. Can I meet this experience? So bringing a sense of caring to it, rather than, I wish that wasn't happening, or why doesn't it stop, or, you know, I'm doing something wrong, or maybe this is the wrong kind of practice for me. These kind of thoughts happen quite frequently. And they come from the same kind of reactivity that actually causes the tensions, or the busyness of mind. And so learning to come from a different place, when we see that reactivity, to see if we can just settle Relax. Come into a place of friendliness, of caring, of softness. And just touch the experience that's here with you right now. Whatever it might be. 
So we're not just seeking to be mindful and present of the experience, but actually open to it, make space for it, allow it to be. And so far as we're able to do that, we find that we actually come to rest. We start to let go of that drivenness and that momentum that keeps us feeling as though somehow we have to fix, improve or go somewhere else, do something better, make something more of what's happening or other than it is at this moment, in this moment. And what is it that allows us to do that? Because mostly we, we feel like when things are difficult, well, I don't want to be stuck with difficult experience. This is not what I want. How can I be happy? doesn't seem possible. If my mind or my heart or my body or my life seems to be filled with something difficult, I'm just going to be unhappy, aren't I? Seems like pretty good logic. That's mostly what we've been told. So we go out there and try and have something different occur. But what happens when we engage in that way is we miss something else. We miss something else. And this is something that's really revealed through understanding. It's not something we can necessarily um, grasp in the familiar way of the mind, conceptually. And yet there's ways we can point to it. It often seems like things are very full or very difficult and that's all we can notice. It's like probably some of you have had the thought, well, gosh, it's rather it's rather full in this hall. It's not a lot of space. You know, look around and you know, just any way you move, there's somebody there. You, know, you just about bump into anybody or somebody in almost every direction. And one might think, gosh, it would be nice to have a bit more space. You know, I could swing my arms around or stretch out a bit more easily. And... Uh, It's kind of interesting looking at the room because at one level I could look at it and say, wow, this room is really full. There's a lot of people in here. But actually, if I just shift my perspective a little bit, I could say actually about three quarters of the room is completely empty at the moment. You know, from here on up. Maybe a little higher if we include (coughs) people on chairs. But all that is empty. There's nothing there. There's all the space. We've all got this space, personal space, all the way up to the ceiling, each of us. You know, just if we notice it, we might not be able to do that much with it. But that's a sort of a pointer and a metaphor to the kind of space that we can discover within ourselves that is actually already there, but we haven't yet learnt how to notice. We haven't learnt to trust in its presence. And so the Buddha spoke of the third foundation of happiness as understanding. Understanding the mechanism whereby we lose touch with the natural ease and space that is there in life. The natural spaciousness and restfulness of the way things are. And that we practice what we're practicing in order to understand the way things are. So far as we don't understand the way things are, we struggle and we suffer. So far as we do understand the way things are, we actually are able to live in harmony with life. And to see the path of happiness, which practice offers us or invites us to undertake. And this basic shift, which I've already, I think, spoken about, the Buddha described very precisely in a phrase. He said, Fools seek to pursue experience. The wise seek to understand it. And it's a very significant statement. To seek to pursue experience. That's the process of trying to get things and get rid of things that seems to dominate our world and our lives. How much time we spent trying to get one particular kind of experience or another, or trying to avoid one particular experience or another. How much we put into that, it seems. And yet, it doesn't bring satisfaction in the end. Temporarily, we can 
enjoy the things we get, of course, or feel relieved when we manage to avoid something difficult. And that has a certain appropriateness in place. But ultimately it doesn't bring lasting satisfaction because no experience in itself is lasting. All experiences change. And so the wise seek to understand the nature of experience. And it's already wisdom to seek to understand it. There's a wisdom in the seeking to understand it. Not just we're wise once we've understood it all. That would sort of maybe seem like it's a long way away before we're going to get to be wise. No, there's actually wisdom in that shift that says, well, let me look, let me see, let me try and understand what's going on here. And that's really the spirit that we invite you to practice in, to see what can I learn, what what am I invited to understand in this process? Rather than looking at it from the point of view, well, was that fun? Did it make me feel like it was just, you know, entertainment or pleasurable? Because that's the usual way we measure things. If it's pleasurable, it's good, I want more. If it's not pleasurable, it's bad and I don't want any of it. Thank you very much. But life inevitably has a mixture of the the beautiful, the delightful, the pleasurable, and the challenging, the difficult, and the painful. It's always like that. It's... I mean, I don't know any... Is there anyone whose life didn't have both of those in them? You know, we might complain about the mixture. You know, we'd like a bit more of this and less of that, but we see that life has this in it. And it's not really for us to try and control the mixture, but to understand the process whereby we engage with our life. Because if we struggle with it, trying to control it or fix it, we see it goes on forever. It goes on forever. There's always something. You know? Sometimes people report sitting in meditation thinking, I can't wait till the end of the sitting. I can't wait till the end of the sitting. My knees are killing me or my mind is just crazy. You know? And the bell rings. It's like, ah, oh, how lovely. Things are really great. You know, we feel really happy. So we go out there and we're walking back and forth. And Oh, it's nice. The birds are singing. The sun is shining. Trees are kind of nice. And the grass is pleasant enough, I guess. And, and after a while, we're still walking back and forth. And we look at our watch. Only five minutes. Oh, gosh, another 40 minutes. You know, and after 20 minutes, we think, I can't wait till the next sitting. And it's sort of obvious, maybe if we notice that, it's nothing to do with the sitting or the walking. It's the way we're always looking for something that isn't there. And so long as we're relating to our life from that place, it will never be there. There will always be something that seems to be the problem. And yet the thing is never ultimately the problem. It's the tendency of the mind that's looking for it to be different than it is. If the mind is like that, no matter where you are, it will happen again. The most sublime, divine and pleasurable circumstances will not remain so because the mind will find something wrong with them. For sure. If that's what we've cultivated and developed. Whereas if we cultivate and develop a capacity to be at peace with what is, then actually no matter what comes, we will be able to find rest. To find a sense of ground that we can rest in. And that ground comes from Trusting in our capacity to meet our experience, to hold what we are exposed to. And to see that the belief that we can't is just that, a belief. That we actually have much greater capacity than we imagine. There's a rather delightful story of a of a old man who was very poor and lived in a very uh, Desperate circumstances, he felt. And he, he went one day to see the wise elder of the village. And he, he came up to him, he said, Oh, Master, Master, my life is so difficult. It's such a struggle. I'm very poor. And I have my, my wife and my children living with me and their children. And still one of my elderly parents lives with us. And we only have one small room together. And it's just so difficult. We're constantly bickering and arguing and... My life is hell. Can you help me? And the wise, the wise man of the village said, Yes, I can help you. Do you have any animals? He says, Yes, I have a, I have a goat and a, a cow and some chickens. 
that I use to make our simple livelihood. He says, okay, yeah, take them into the house with you. Do as I say. God will help you. And so the man is a bit surprised, but he goes back and does it. The next day he comes running back, knocking on the door. What a calamity you've caused. I've got all these animals in my house. I can't bear it. It's even worse than before. What have you done to me? And the wise man says, you're right, probably a mistake. Go home, take them all out. The next day, the man comes back and says, oh, thank you, thank you. My house is so calm, so peaceful. There's so much space now. It's like, where is that space that we don't notice? Because we're so busy focusing on what seems to be the problem. That space comes from the quality of presence that we bring to experience. From resting more and more in our capacity to meet and to hold and to open into each moment. And actually allowing that to be the ground that we rest in rather than putting so much weight and a burden onto the experiences, the things that are happening, which we can't control, and expecting them to somehow fulfill us. Because, you know, the world is full of people, for starters. Have you noticed how hard it is to get even one person to do remotely what you would like them to do? Any of you who've tried, and I bet most of you have at some point, will know that it's a recipe for frustration and misery. And that's kind of sobering, because there's six billion people on this planet. So that a lot of people are going to be not doing what you want. And even it gets more personal than that, doesn't it? We've spent a day here on a retreat, and we've noticed that our mind and our heart doesn't necessarily do what we want either. Tell it to be still, be quiet. We'd like it to be calm and peaceful or spiritual even. And sometimes it really can't be bothered. And yet we can struggle with that if we don't understand to see that, oh, even this process of our life that we're encountering here, this too, just like the six billion other people, isn't in our control in the way we imagine it to be. We need to understand. It's a bit embarrassing actually. But it's really useful to admit to ourselves, hey, my mind is not in my control. It doesn't do what I tell it to. So we don't have to feel bad if it wanders off and gets lost. But when we see that's happening, then we can bring it back. And that's what we're asked to do again and again and again. And as we do this, as we come back, as we come into ourselves more and more, we can start to have a little bit of humor about the situation. It's kind of healthy and useful just to be able to chuckle at the predicament of life. Um, I think Gandhi had this sense when he once commented, he said of his life, I have three great adversaries in my life. The first adversary is the Indian people, who I find it quite difficult to influence at all for the better. Sorry, the first... um, got it wrong. The first adversary is the, the British Raj government that he was sort of negotiating with. They're quite difficult, but sometimes I find I can influence them a little bit. They're my great, first great adversary. He said, my second great adversary is the Indian people. Them, I seem to have even less influence with it than the British government. But, you know, my greatest adversary is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi. With him, I have almost no influence at all. <laughs> And there's a way when one frames it like that, and you know, Gandhi is a spiritual practitioner for you know, many, many years, devoted in his spiritual discipline, his meditation, his yoga, his life, his service. And yet still the acknowledgement that this that we call me seems to be doing its own thing. And yet that doesn't mean we somehow give up or abandon the journey or the possibility of transformation. But it points us to that shift or that transition in the way we understand what the journey is and what our part in it. Because our part in the journey is to meet this moment. To see where we're holding or resisting or reacting 
against what is here and see if we can let that go. See if we can allow ourselves to be here. And even if we notice we are reacting and we don't want to be here, we don't want this experience, to let that be. When we react, you know, it's like I'm sitting here, my knee hurts. I think, oh, I should just be with my knee, but I don't want to be with my knee. I want that to go away. I think, oh, that's a bit angry. I think, I shouldn't be angry. Angry's not very good, it's not very spiritual. Oh, that's a bit judgmental. Oh, I shouldn't be judging. (laughs) We see, you know, it just goes on and on. And yet at some level we can say, oh, look, that's what happens. Pain, reactivity, judgment. Huh, okay. When we actually stop and make space for it, something in us can come to rest. And actually to rest in the willingness to befriend our experience and to learn from it. This is what transforms life. So I'd like to finish with a quote from Ajahn Chah, who was a, who was a, uh, a great teacher in uh, Thailand in the 20th century. And he spoke of this practice that we're engaged in and I think framed it rather beautifully in this particular paragraph. He said, Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So let's sit quietly for a minute or two together, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.